All right, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 16. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, what is going to follow this incredible exorcism that we looked at last week when the Apostle Paul cast out this demon from this slave girl who had the the gift of uh, fortune-telling, demonically given, and eventually the Apostle Paul will cast her out. Well, that's going to have consequences. So in Acts chapter 16, let me uh, begin reading uh, this morning. And uh, I'll start uh, reading in verse 18 and read down through actually uh, verse 26. This will be our passage this morning. And as I read this for you, I remind you that we're reading the inspired Word of God. And what a blessing it is to have Scripture to guide us. So uh, please listen with ears of faith as we read God's Word. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 18. She, that is this slave girl who had a spirit of the python or spirit of divination, she continued doing this for many days. And of course she was saying these are Bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, referring to Paul and Silas and the others. She was doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, and proceeded in order to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastening their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, we're going to break this uh, passage down this morning. We're going to look at uh, the reaction of the masters to what Paul had done in exercising the demon out of their slave. Then the reaction of the magistrates. Then the reaction of the men of God. And then finally, although primarily next week, we'll look at uh, the, uh, the response of the one whom they appropriately Uh, proclaimed was the Most High God. And so we'll be looking at that uh, this morning. So back up in verse 18, the Apostle Paul had cast out this spirit of Python that we looked at last week. This uh, demonic spirit of divination. She was able to foretell the future. She was a prophetess, only this wasn't from the Spirit of God. This is from a demon that was enabling her to uh, be very good at proclaiming people's fortunes. But now the girl was delivered and set free from her demonic possession. Was she converted to Christ? Uh, I wonder that. It doesn't specifically say that she was. We can only hope that the Spirit of God who rescued her from the slavery to the devil also set her free spiritually in Jesus Christ. The sad thing about it is she still would have been a slave. And masters back then, if uh, 
their little slave girls that they were trafficking in, uh, obviously if they if they were no longer useful in one area, they would use them in another area. And you can only guess maybe what uh, this little girl might have been subjected to. But uh, if Satan cannot insert his secret agent, the slave girl, by the use of flattery, as she was trying to flatter the apostles and therefore undermine the gospel witness, then Satan will seek to stamp out that gospel witness through persecution. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. So we read in verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So let's uh, look at the arrest in verse 19. Uh, her masters, the masters of this little slave girl, were kind of the spiritual pimps of the day. They sold her powers for a price. And now when Paul has exercised that demon, their cash cow just dried up and was no longer producing any milk. So suddenly, Paul had just killed their sacred cow. He had just ruined their prophets. And they were steaming mad in their hearts because their hearts were in their wallet. Their money was their God. And this little girl, possessed by a demon, was making them a ton of money. That was now over. That was gone. And so now they're extremely angry at Paul for what he did in ruining their financial fortunes. It's interesting that uh, John Stott, one of the commentators, says that Luke, in writing this, has a play on words in verse 18 and 19. It's not so clear in the English. But Luke uses exactly the same word when he says that the demon came out of her And the same word is that their prophets went out as well. And the idea is is that when Paul, through his act of mercy, rescued this slave girl, that their prophets were exercised as well. They lost them. And as the demon went out of her, their prophets were gone as well. He used the same word in Greek, and he's he's drawing that, that interesting parallel between the two. As the Spirit abandoned the girl, their prophets abandoned them. When the Spirit was gone, their prophets were gone. That's the play on words here in verse 18 and 19. So these guys have been hit bad in their pocketbook. And they're going into a furious tizzy. So we read in verse 19 that they seized Paul and Silas, probably with some other people with them, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. I want to kind of show you again where this is taking place. This is a kind of a modern pictured picture of Philippi. And again, the, uh, the main fortress, if you will, is at the top of the hill. Then the city kind of sloped down. And a lot of the main city was down on this flatter area at the bottom. You can see the theater right here, which is a Roman style theater, which still exists. And you can see a lot of the buildings over to the uh, left of it. I want to try to show you a mock-up of what the city basically looked like because uh, we find the Neapolis gate was right here. Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and the others would have gone through this gate into into the city of Philippi originally. And then notice the forum right there. That's where all this activity is going to take place in the forum. Uh, in this particular picture, it's the dark area. Here's actually a, a modern picture of the ruins that they have, through archaeology, has excavated and they've kind of dug up and gotten back down to this level. So this is basically what the form looked like in Paul's day. Now if you notice, there's a large empty area in the middle that's about the size of a football field. This is typical of a Roman form. 
And on the outside uh, sides of, of this open area were all kinds of different buildings. There's an east temple on the right. There's a west temple over on the other side. There's a library right here. And you go around here, there's a bunch of shops. Lydia may very well have had her business set up in one of those shops there at Philippi. And then you go all the way over to the bottom left and you have the archives. That's where the records were kept. That's where all the weights and measures were kept for business activities. Then you move up the left-hand side. You find the basilica or the law court. And then a part of the West Temple was a curia. This is where the magistrates had their offices. This is where they would have dragged Paul and Silas into the Roman Forum. And this is where all of this would have taken place is along the left side of the Forum. All of this open area was where people would gather. They would have a place up at the top. You can see the... Uh, the Bema, where public speeches were made. So all of this is the layout of Philippi. So they're somewhere outside the city. They get captured now after they exercise this demon out of this little girl and they drag them into the forum. Here's a picture of one of the, the central area. You can just kind of get an idea of the layout. Very flat. Here's some of the columns that were on the uh, south side. Beautiful Corinthian uh, caps on the top of it. Here's a picture of uh, some of the shops on the south side of the forum. Again, Lydia could have had several of those. We don't know. And then again, here's the, uh, the main picture of an overview. <clears throat> now again, on the left-hand side, the law court, the basilica, and the curia is where the magistrate's offices are. And if you get up close, these are some of the ruins of that of those particular buildings. This is a view of the council house, the curia, the northwest corner of the forum. And Paul and Silas may very well have been brought out right in front of this. And uh, the magistrates could have been there a little farther down. This is called the basilica or the law court. Again, magistrates may have been in this area. But they've excavated and they know this is where those guys were because they found this in the rubble right outside those particular rooms. This was engraved in a stone. You can see it's a Roman shield and a sword. And I've kind of enlarged the sword, or the spear, the end of the spear, I'm sorry, uh, in the bottom left-hand corner. But that was the symbol for the magistrates. So we know where their offices are located. So again, we know where they've dragged Paul and Barnabas. I'm not Barnabas, Paul and Silas. So anyway, we find the accusation now in verse 20. And it's very interesting that the masters are very clever. They conceal the real reason for their animosity in arresting Paul and Silas and bringing them before the magistrates. The real reason is they've just lost a financial huge amount of money. Their future profits have just dried up. That's the real reason they're upset. But the re that won't fly probably before the magistrate. Oh, well, so you made a bad investment. You know, somehow you're losing money. That's not going to get the punishment they want on Paul and Silas. So they basically start coming at it from different perspectives. Notice the first one is they play the race card. Look at uh, verse 20. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. They're Jews. And then if you read verse 21, they're proclaiming customs which are, uh, it is not lawful for us to accept or to, to observe. Being Romans. We're the Romans. And these guys are Jews. Okay? So they're playing the race card. You know, some stuff is, is never new, you know? I mean, it's like it's going on today. The race card is being played all the time. Now, these Romans obviously had a racial prejudice against the Jews. Uh, the Romans were typically anti-Semitic, primarily because the morality of the Jews confronted them in their sexual licentiousness and their lifestyle. And they would have temple prostitutes and all of that. And the morality of the Jews obviously was, a, was, was an affront to them. But also, the Jewish monotheism was an attack against the Roman polytheism. 
You know, the Olympic God, the Olympian gods and Zeus and all those guys, they, they, they worship many gods, but the Jews only worshiped one God. So again, they were basically, they didn't like any of that. Now, Judaism was legal in the Roman Empire, um, but it was prohibited for Jews to make converts of Roman citizens. And Christians and Jews, you know, were still lumped together at this point in time. So they play the race card. These guys are Jews. So already they're, they're starting to stir up those, those natural anti-Semitic prejudices that the Romans had against the Jews. And then secondly, they begin to talk about, in verse 20, these guys are throwing our city into confusion. In verse 21, they're proclaiming customs which it's not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. So now they began to put a political spin on it. Uh, obviously, they weren't there uh, in, in any way trying to throw the city into confusion. They're proclaiming the, the gospel, but to what extent they're, they're proclaiming customs that are illegal. Um, of course, they are trying to convert people to Christianity, but they're primarily coming at them from a as being illegal disturbers of the peace. That's why they emphasize in verse 20, they're throwing our city into confusion. They're starting a riot. These guys are disturbing the peace. Now that was an issue that magistrates would have been very concerned about. Um, obviously for, for Paul and Silas and the others to be accused of stirring up confusion or illegal customs or causing a riot or stirring up trouble, uh, that was not good. That was a that was an accusation that would that would carry some weight. Uh, any religion or group that stirred up a riot or an uproar would need to be punished because that was a threat to the peace and order that Rome prided itself in, that the magistrates were responsible to maintain. So if anyone was disturbing that, then again, that that's not good. They're going to be punished. Now, what's interesting about this is that right before this event, the Emperor Claudius had cast the Jews out of Rome for causing a riot. So already the Jews were, were now all the Roman Empire already had this mindset, got to watch those Jews, man. They're going to bring in riots. They're going to bring in trouble. They've already been kicked out of Rome by the emperor. So now they're showing up here in Philippi and they're being accused of starting a riot or causing confusion. So you can see the political tension that they have been able to, to manage. And it's a false accusation. But uh, nevertheless, Paul and Silas get tarred and feathered by this race card, this false uh, political attack. And the crowd in the forum is gathered together and they buy into it. Verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them. Now understand what happened here. Let's see. I lost my picture. <clears throat> Pardon me. Just a second. So what has happened is that the crowd that was there obviously was uh, influenced by all the hubbub and everything that was going on. And uh, they were swayed by the accusations that were being uh, waged against Paul and Silas. And uh, at this point, I'm not going to worry about the rest of it. You've, uh, I got through most of the PowerPoint, I think. But uh, so the crowd as a whole is, uh, is now starting to side with the masters and in verse 22, they are so persuaded by it that they rise up against them and the chief magistrates tear the robes off of them. And obviously there is a, there's no trial. There's no defense. There's no witnesses that Paul and Silas get to call on their behalf. There's no cross-examination. There's no investigation of the facts. It's kind of a kangaroo court. 
and the accused apparently aren't even given a chance to speak because they are Roman citizens. This is what we'll learn later on. Both Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and they should not be, have been treated this way. They have certain rights as Romans. But apparently they weren't even given a, an opportunity to defend themselves in any way. There was such a, an uproar over this so-called potential riot that uh, the crowd began to, to uh, no doubt shout out and punish them. And, and so uh, basically they were immediately condemned and punished. They tore the robes off of Paul and Silas, verse 22. That's to remove all padding. And Luke and, and uh, Timothy apparently escaped this, possibly because they were Gentiles, not Jews. Okay, Luke was full Gentile and Timothy was half Gentile, half Jew. So for some reason they escaped. Maybe that's the reason. And then in verse 22 and 23, after they tear the robes off of them, they proceed to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. Now to be beaten with many blows from these rods must have been an excruciating form of punishment. This is not the Jewish 39 lashes where you got to stop at 39 with a whip. The Romans didn't have any limits like the Jews did. Jews had 40 stripes. So they stopped at 39 just to make sure they wouldn't violate the command of Scripture. Romans didn't have that. Now the guys who actually did the beating were called lictors. And this is where we get our expression, you know, it's for someone to get their licks. And they would carry around these bundles of rods. And sticking out of the bundle of rods would be an axe. An axe head. Because if they were going to punish you, they're either going to beat you with one of those rods, or they're going to chop your head off or something like that. So these guys took their rods, they exposed the back of Paul and Silas, and they beat them with these rods. And what we're told in verse 23, many blows. Not a few. A lot. What's so fascinating, amazing actually, is that this is probably the first of three times that Paul was beaten with rods. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, he says five times he received the Jewish 39 lashes. Add that up. Multiply that out. Three times he says I was, I was beaten with rods. This being one. Once I was stoned. And then he added to that, I've been beaten times without number. Beaten with fists. Beaten with sticks. Just run out of town or whatever it is. He was beaten so often throughout his ministry, but he was willing to endure that for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's an, he's an incredible man. Obviously, the Spirit of God is doing something powerful in this guy's life. If you're not executed by the Romans, you get the rod. And their backs would have been a swollen mass of lacerated skin pulverized muscle tissue and blood. The pain would have been excruciating. And no doubt they couldn't. When they were thrown in the prison, you can't lean up against the wall to support yourself. Because the back would just be throbbing and aching with this pain, just, just searing, just shooting through the back and probably down the arms. And on top of that, they... They put their feet in stocks just to add to the torture. The stocks would be made out of wood. They'd be divided in half. They'd have a number of holes in there. And they would stretch their legs out as far as they could to the nearest hole, stick their feet in there, put the top part on, and then lock it in. That in and of itself, they said, could, could create such an agony it could actually dislocate Bones in the ankles or even possibly in the knees at times. And Paul said in Galatians 6 verse 17, 
I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. The brand marks, that word marks refers in this case to the permanent scars. I bear in my body the permanent scars of Jesus Christ. And that very same word is sometimes used of the brand marks that masters would give to their slaves. Just like we brand cattle, they would brand their slaves. And Paul says, to the glory of God, I have been branded. I belong to my Master. And I'll show you the proof. Here's the marks on my back. He's bought me with a price. My body belongs to Him. He's my Master. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Again, sadly, they should have been able to avoid all of this because both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. That would have given them the right to a defense attorney. They would have been exempted from the flogging unless it was something extremely serious. And even if it was a capital punishment, if you were a non-citizen like Peter and you're condemned to death, you get crucified. If you're a citizen and you get condemned to death, you get your head cut off. Quicker, faster, much less pain. So there are great advantages to being a citizen. They were both citizens, but somehow their voice was not heard in the yelling of the crowd. The jail that they were thrown in was certainly no Holiday Inn, uh, not a Motel 6. Uh, the, the stocks and the just the, the beating on their backs would have given them a tremendous amount of pain. The agony, the cruelty, the severity, the potential cuts and shredded parts of their back uh, was not uh, anything that would quickly go away. Uh, done the in, no indication that God healed them. They suffered the pain. They bled. No telling how long it took for those things to heal up. But what's so amazing in verse uh, 25 is around midnight. Uh, why midnight? Well, they can't sleep. Can you sleep if you were beaten that way? Lying inside a small little prison cell. Could you sleep? Pain was too great. Around midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing hymns of praise to God with such a loud voice that the other prisoners in the jail were listening to them. I think what's so instructive, I, I just, um, you know, I, I read that and I, and I can't help but think, how would I respond? And I just, I could only <laughs> hope that the Lord would, you know, give us the strength to respond that way. I know what my flesh would be tempted to do, but there's no indication that they did it. But oftentimes when we go through really serious times of suffering and pain and trial and troubles in life, Sometimes we're tempted to play the if-only game, aren't we? If only we hadn't come to Philippi. If only I had not cast out that demon, then none of this would have happened. If only we would have ignored that slave girl for one more day. If only they had heard us yell out that we are Roman citizens, then things would be different. If only, if only. It's not a good game to play when you're trying to endure times of struggle. It's, a, it's really futile to say, if only. Because that's not the way it happened. You can't change it. They also didn't slump down into a pity party. Paul didn't say, well, my goodness, this is what I get for doing a good deed. Or Silas wasn't playing the pity party. Man, if I knew what was going to happen to us. I never would have signed up for this job, this ministry. They didn't play a pity party. They weren't focusing upon their sorrows and the bad things that had happened to them. Their focus wasn't on that. It was someplace else. Notice also they didn't blame themselves. 
Oftentimes we have a tendency when bad things happen just to blame ourselves. Man, it's all my fault. You know, I haven't lived the way I was supposed to live and now this great disaster in my life is, is all my fault. It's all my due to my sin. And it's not that there aren't consequences to our sin, but rarely this is not the case in this kind of a situation. And we have a tendency to want to add additional floggings to our souls. Yes, we need to always be examining our heart for sin, repenting of sin. That's just a day-to-day thing we need to be doing. Sometimes when we go through great trials like this, there's a tendency just to, to blame ourselves and wallow in our own agony, our own self-pity. That our big trials in life is because I have failed and I have done this and I have done that and Satan being the accuser of the brethren is quick to rush in and say, yeah, you did this and you did that and it's all your fault and you're not worthy to be a Christian and why do you even pray anymore? And they didn't fall into that snare. They didn't blame each other either. Silas didn't say to Paul, man, you know, when you told me that when God saved you on the road to Damascus and Jesus said that you're my chosen vessel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake, man, you know, I, I should have known better than to team up with someone that God said he's going to make him suffer. They didn't blame each other like that. He didn't say it's all your fault to the other person. We often blame others for our troubles, don't we? We like to play the blame game. So that when difficulties come in our life, it's easy for husbands to look at their wives and say, it's your fault. Or wives to look at their husbands and say, it never would have happened if you'd have done this or you'd have done that. There's no evidence that they in any way were blaming each other. And most importantly, they they were not blaming God. They were submitting to it but they weren't blaming God. They were not getting depressed by, by well, where are you, God, in my, in my time of need? Where were you that you could have stopped them from flogging us? Where were you, God? Did you abandon us? Why did you desert me in, my, in our hour of need? They didn't play that game. Sometimes we do that. David did that a lot. Read the Psalms. Psalm 10.1 Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We do experience those discouragements at times. David again, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And sometimes in our times of darkness, we, we sink down into what the Puritans called seasons of spiritual desertion. And it seems like God has deserted us. He hasn't. But our circumstances, when we focus on our circumstances, then it appears to us that He has. Psalm 22, David again, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but You do not answer by night, but I have no rest. See, we can easily fall into that. But they didn't. Amazingly. This is incredible. They did not blame God or accuse Him of being distant or abandoned them. But what did they do? They worshipped. They worshipped God. And in times of darkness and troubles and trials and pain and suffering, This is when we've got to learn to walk by faith and not by our feelings. This is when we've got to realize that my feelings are all scrambled right now. My feelings are all over the place. My emotions are up and down. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by trust and confidence in the Word of God. What the Lord has revealed to us. That's the only way out of these kinds of difficulties. The only way we're going to see the sunshine again. The only way you can be in a dingy, dirty, filthy prison 
with your back all chewed up and beaten up and battered and your feet in stalks with pain just just flashing up and down your back and yet you have the grace to worship God. And that's a miracle of the grace of God. But the only way you can do that is get your focus off your circumstances and on to God. We've got to turn our face to God. Not our circumstances, not our trials, but turn our face to God in humble submission and trust that He has a plan and that His plans are always good for His children. So we have a little worship service. This is a jailhouse worship service. And basically, it comprises two parts they prayed. In verse 25, they prayed. I asked myself, I wonder what they were praying for. If I was in there, I would be tempted to pray those imprecatory prayers. Oh God, smash their heads on the rocks. Torture them, oh God. Give them no no rest at night. Sleepless nights. I don't think that's what they prayed. This is what Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think they were praying for those guys. Those magistrates. Those lictors that beat them up so badly. Stuck their feet in in those stocks. I think they were praying for them. Oh God, would You have mercy? Oh Lord, would You open their eyes to see that there's something greater than just this life. To see their sin, to see their need of Christ, to one day have the hope of an eternal glory that far outweighs the pains and sufferings of this life. Oh God, save them. They were praying for those who persecuted them. That would be my bet. In addition to their praying, they weren't cursing the masters. Or the magistrates, but praying for them. In addition, we're told in verse 25 that they were singing hymns of praise to God. Hymns of praise to God. Instead of complaining to God, they were praising God. They were praising God for probably, Lord, thank You that You delivered that slave girl from being demon-possessed. What a good God You are. How merciful you were to this little slave girl that you cast a demon out of her. And oh God, we praise you that we've seen fruit in the gospel ministry. Lydia has come to faith in Christ and maybe others by now. Oh, praise you God that even though we're in this jailhouse, you have used us as your servants to bring the water of life to those who are, who are so thirsty and in a spiritual drought. And thank You, O God, that though we have received this beating, that You have preserved our life and we are still alive to continue to serve You for as long as You leave us here. And they were praising God through the Psalms. They were singing Psalms. And I think what this teaches us is that they found the comfort and the contentment and the joy to sustain them in their darkest hour from the Word of God. They were singing Scripture. They were singing from the Psalter. I'm currently reading through the Psalms and I just wonder which ones they were singing. Maybe it was Psalm 9. O oh Lord, also, the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Or maybe they were singing Psalm 46 For God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Or maybe it was in Psalm 34 that their thoughts were drawn to sing and praise God that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Whatever they were singing, they were praising God with a loud voice 
even in being beaten and shamed and discarded by the Romans, they were not ashamed of their worship of God. They were not embarrassed by raising their voice. They, they sang with a loud voice so that all the other soldiers and prisoners could hear them singing and praising God. What an incredible testimony. There are others who have done this as well. Remember all the way back in Acts 5 when the apostles were taken out and flogged in Jerusalem in order to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then they were released. In Acts 5.41 says they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for His name's sake. See, they were also beaten. They were flogged. But there was joy. Why was there joy in the midst of their pain and sorrow and suffering? Because they took their eyes off their circumstances and they put their eyes on Christ. They turned their face upward, heavenward, not downward, not to the back, but to the One who created the back, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their focus was different. I find this to be absolutely amazing. What grace God gave these men to respond to their beatings and their floggings and their roddings and actually worship. And when we suffer, I think this gives us encouragement that as impossible as it may sound, that God would have us to find His joy in the midst of our jails and find worship in the midst of our pain. Part of the reason why they could do that is because of the promises of Christ. We read them earlier in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Peter also, remembering those words, exhorted his readers that to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. See, that's the source of the joy. That's the source of the worship. They turn their face to Christ, to His promises, and to the glory that awaits them in heaven. That's the only thing that can really sustain us in times of darkness and gloom. It's like Paul says in Romans 8, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now you may say, well, wait a second, Alan. Paul and Silas and here in Acts 16 and the apostles back in Acts 5, they were suffering specific persecution for being identified with Jesus Christ. My sufferings and my pain aren't linked directly to persecution. How can I have joy in mine? It's different. But you see, you have to remember several things that the Bible encourages us with. Number one, we are told that every believer is going to has been called into the fellowship of His suffering. And that suffering can take many forms. It's not always persecution. We have been called to suffer. And there's a fellowship with Christ. Some of Christ's sufferings are not because of His atonement. Some of them are just human sufferings. Being abandoned. Being neglected. Or whatever the physical ailments of hunger and thirst, things like that. But we're told through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, right? So you're going to have many tribulations. Just count on it. It's a part of God's plan for your life. Christ told all of His disciples, if you want to, if you want to come after Me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Me. You'll have a cross to bear. Sometimes they'll be lighter. Sometimes they'll be heavier. But we all have tribulations and sufferings and crosses to bear. That's just a part of the Christian life. And it's not all persecution related sufferings and crosses. And the second thing the Scriptures remind us of is that there are many reasons for our trials. But they all work for the good. 
But we'll have all kinds of trials that oftentimes we, we won't know why they come into our life. And yet James could tell his readers, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various trials, all kinds of trials. Consider it all joy. Even the non-persecution trials and sufferings and physical afflictions that you go through, consider it all joy. Why can we consider it all joy? Even if it's not persecution, suffering, we are to consider it all joy because God is working that for a good. And James goes on and tells us what that good is. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's a spiritual sanctification that is necessary and it's developed through the various trials that we go through. Peter said the same thing to his readers again. You're distressed by various trials, but in this you greatly rejoice. What were they greatly rejoicing in? That in spite of all the temporal setbacks that I have, because of all the physical problems that I have, because of all the financial and emotional and spiritual problems that I have, we have an inheritance in heaven which is reserved for us, which is which cannot be defiled. It cannot fade away. It's reserved there already. And we can find joy in that. Even if everything is crumbling and falling apart in our life, we can still find a joy if we put our face on Christ and His promises and the glory to come and not fixate on our problems and our suffering. Our trials will come to us in all shapes and sizes. We, we Probably none of us will be beaten with many blows with rods and thrown in a jail because of our witness for Christ. But you'll have different kinds of trials and problems. And in the midst of them all, if we turn our face to Christ in humility and trust in His promises and looking for the glory to come, the Lord says we can have His joy and we can have His peace. That sounds pretty impossible depending upon the trial that maybe in your life or ones you've had in the past. But this is a key of Scripture that we're to run our race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That's the only way to find His joy. That's the only way to find a song in your heart in the midst of your suffering. It's the only way to find His joy in the midst of your jail. It's when you focus on Christ and you fix your eyes upon Him and His love and His grace and His promises and the glory that's yet to come. It's easy to have joy when the bank account is fat and everything is running smoothly, the wind is at your back, and the sun is shining overhead. It's not so easy when your back is throbbing and bleeding. It's not so easy when you've been thrown in a dungeon and your back is against a wall and your feet are stretched out and you're in agony and you're in pain. It's not so easy to find the joy of the Lord or to find His peace. But those who turn their face to Christ in submission and faith and trust and trust in His plan and His grace to see you through can find that joy and find that peace. Can you worship God when you've been beaten down? Can you worship God when your pain is unbearable? Can you worship God when you don't understand why in the world this has happened to me? When you're thrown in the jail and your back is bleeding, you can. Paul and Silas have proved it when we turn our face to Christ. Years ago, we used to live in another house than the one we currently live in. And someone had planted a bunch of tulips out in the front yard. There was probably 15 or 20 beautiful red tulips that had come up in the springtime. When the sun is out, those tulips would just turn their happy, smiling little faces to the sun and open up its petals and just bask in the sun all the way across the sky. Just happy little flowers rejoicing in their Creator, soaking in the warmth and the energy that only the sun can provide. But then a big thunderstorm came. And it was a violent thunderstorm. Heavy rain. 
lots of hail, and it battered and beat those little tulips to smithereens. I mean, after the storm finally left, to look on the ground, all those red petals look like a lot of a blood from a savage battlefield. Their little petals had all been torn off from the hail hitting them, the heavy rain. I remember once the sun came out again, I remember looking out on the front yard and those poor tulips were just in such a sad condition. But there was one tulip. Never forget it. He had one petal left. <laughs> one petal. And as that sun came out and was shining again, that little flower turned its face to the sun and just worshipped. He followed the sun across the rest of the sky, worshiping God with the the only one little petal that he had left. But he turned his face to the sun because that was the source still of his warmth and his strength, his energy, his vitality, his very life. And there are times in your life when maybe like a Paul and a Silas, you've been beaten badly. And your life has been devastated. And the different petals from your life have been torn off savagely. And you're not near what you once were at some point earlier in your life. Can you worship God when you've been beaten up like that? Can you worship God when you've been torn apart? Can you worship God when the pain is unbearable? You can. And even if you just have one little petal left, Turn your face to Christ and worship Him and praise Him for what He has left you with rather than what He has taken away from you. And that is the key to finding the joy and the peace when we're thrown in jail and we've been beaten badly that there is a blessing that comes when we turn our face and humbly submit and trust in Him. May God help us all to do that in our hour of trial. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You for Paul and Silas and just the incredible grace You gave to them. Though they were beaten so badly and uh, so abused, and so much pain. And yet the Spirit of God drew their faces to Jesus Christ, glorying in the promises of the Psalms, the Word of God, no doubt looking forward to the eternal inheritance in heaven, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, and the troubles and the trials and the pain and the blood and the sorrow in some way, slightly moved to the background as they were able to focus through all of that, their affections, their joy, their heart upon Christ. That's the key. And help us to do that, O God, as we go through our trials. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.